I also think the United States will face actually like a similar decision point where we're going to have to be like, are we going to support open decentralization and human coordination and allow people to kind of like do things that are subversive to the state? You have to really, really, really lean in and like let it thrive. Or you need to be China and you need to ban it and you need to lock it down. And you need to say, we have the monopoly on violence, on monetary policy and on human coordination. Hello and welcome to the Lewis and Kyle Show, an interview podcast where Lewis and I interview really interesting entrepreneurs and investors in industries like crypto, real estate, internet entrepreneurship, content creation, and more. We have published about 90 episodes, so if you enjoy this one, please go and check out one of the ones in the bank. They're all really excellent. I completely agree with that, Kyle. This episode, also excellent, in my opinion, is with John Wu. He has a very interesting background, uh, kind of been in every impressive kind of institution you can think of, right? Harvard Business School graduate, Yale undergrad. Uh, he almost worked for Theranos. I don't know if that counts as impressive, but it certainly counts for an interesting story that adds some color to a lot of this interview. He worked at Google. He worked at Bain Capital, which is like kind of the Mitt Romney company, if y'all don't know that name, but it's a prestigious consulting firm. Uh, and now he works in growth at a crypto protocol called Aztec which applies your knowledge technology to add a layer of privacy to some Ethereum transactions. Also additional details and explanation of that provided courtesy of John in the early parts of this interview. We discuss a lot here. Uh, we discuss kind of some cultural differences between working in those suits institutions from the past, uh, not from the past, they're still current, they're still very relevant, uh, but from John's past uh, specifically to working in Web3 and kind of the newer internet type culture of environments that he works for in DAOs and things like that. We discuss zero knowledge technology. Uh, John does his best to make it understandable for people like Kyle and myself who do not have the backgrounds that he has. Uh, and we discuss other exciting Web3 projects on his radar as well as some just other general advice from having such an interesting career and being a super knowledgeable person. Quick disclaimer before we get started, I got two. Obviously, there is no financial advice in this podcast. It is just our opinions, not even financial opinions, really just about entertainment and speculation and us having fun. Uh, don't encourage you to act on anything you hear on this podcast. Always do your own research, consult with people who actually know what they're doing. And that's that disclaimer. Second disclaimer, Anyone watching on video, I was sicker than a dog in this interview. Don't know what it was. Never got the tests, but I was sick. We know that much for sure. Uh, so I apologize for obnoxiously blowing my nose half the interview, but I muted myself every time I did that. So it only is disruptive to the people on video who have to watch. Sorry about that. Okay. Now I'm going to switch the episode. Enjoy. John Wu, thank you for coming on the Lewis and Kyle show. Of course. Thanks for having me. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so my first question for you is why is further privacy in crypto and Ethereum specifically necessary and important? I think the easiest analogy that I have is like if you went to the coffee shop to go buy a croissant, you wouldn't also hand your bank account to the teller, right? You wouldn't hand the bank account to the person running the register. And that's basically what we do on Ethereum today. And so it's privacy is only weird for blockchain. Uh, because we have a default that everything is public. But actually, if you think about your normal life, everything, the default is privacy. And then you elect disclosure uh, when you choose to. So if you go have a mortgage application, you're like, okay, yeah, please like delve into my bank account, like look at all of my receipts ever and make sure that my finances are in line and you can write me this loan. Um, so we already expect privacy in our lives. Um, privacy is something that we expect in every single interaction. So 
why do we need privacy is kind of an interesting question. It's it's almost like why did we uh, default to well, public is actually the bigger question. Yeah, I th well, I think that you know the common misconception is that crypto is already private and that like that's why criminals use it, right? Because you can't track it. But in reality, it's a public ledger and anybody can see any transaction that's ever happened. And so you guys are working to make it private, right? At yeah, Aztec. absolutely. Yeah, that's mm -hmm. a pretty hilarious misconception to me um, because you can actually go on Etherscan if you're uh, you know, on the ETH network and you go to etherscan.io and you can see literally every transaction that ever happened. And so it might be pseudonymous, right? Like, oh, you know, my address is 0xabc123, so how could anyone associate that with me? Well, there's like tons of firms trying to do that. Right. Chainalysis, right. Um, Coinbase knows exactly who you are when you withdraw to your Ethereum address. And for sure, like federal regulators and law enforcement are, you know, constantly looking to track the blockchain. And if I were them, I would love the public blockchain. Um, and so our goal is not to kind of like go around um, and obscure everything completely. We want to build audit tools with the magic of zero knowledge proofs that make it really easy to retain privacy and auditability. Um, but yeah, it's definitely a massive misconception that everything you do on the blockchain is private in some way. Right. I, th I think with a lot of the words just involved in here, right, that's like one of the, the biggest things people have difficulty with in crypto uh, is, you know, because now it's the first time you've had to like question these things like money, cash, dollars like to some people all three of those are perfect synonyms and completely interchangeable but like dollars is just one specific currency money's like we get into, i don't even want to attempt to like get into the theory there and then like cash implies like a private like for the coffee shop right you hand them a five dollar bill that is a five dollar bill that is not like you said that that does not they can't go on your ether scan and see every other coffee you've ever purchased and where and why and etc uh so like being in crypto is understanding that all three of those are extremely distinct terms and it seems like you're almost trying to port the, the cash functionality uh to to ethereum uh but let's let's backtrack for a second how did you go from a very non-crypto tech bro background to where you are now in crypto working for a privacy focused protocol uh, let's see. Yeah, I come from a TradFi background. Like I did consulting for a couple of years. I worked in private equity. I went to Harvard Business School, like, you know, really linear corporate trajectory. And then I was an entrepreneur for a bit and did a couple really hard businesses. Um, I did a private, uh, I did a, a real estate business where I was taking single family homes and converting them to co-living. And then I did a food trucks as a service business in New York. And I've actually seen this pattern among a bunch of crypto folks. A lot of us come from really hard, like Adams real world businesses. And then you come to the magic world of permissionless blockchains and you're like, oh my God, like this is a totally frictionless environment where, you know, businesses can scale overnight. You look at, you know, something like Uniswap, uh, which I did a little bit of work for this year, you know, Uniswap is doing 500 billion dollars of volume annually with like 20 people you look at coinbase coinbase is doing double that you know they're doing a trillion dollars of volume annually approximately but with thousands of people right and so kind of you look at businesses and you're like oh my god like it's half as big but it's one percent of the amount of overhead and you're like this is just magic and so the way i fell into it was i was shutting down my food truck startup and just had a couple friends who were into the crypto game and, and they kind of showed me the yields that were possible on DeFi. 
And I'm like, okay, that's nuts, right? You're talking about 20, 30, 50, 100% yield. And that's not to mention, like, you know, the crazy eight uh, billion protocols. <laughs> exactly. You know, all the Ohm forks, which we can get into that. Um, you know, Ohm and Olympus Dow forks where you're, yeah, getting infinity APY. But I started digging into that and I'm like, okay, where does yield come from? And I listened to this uh, Uncommon Core podcast with Suzu and he explained where the yields come from. And I'm like, this is totally rational. And then I started digging into decentralized exchanges, which generate fees and lending to levered longs, which generates yield. And I was like, this is all rational. Like taking all of my TradFi knowledge, I'm like, this totally makes sense, right? It's just a matter of supply and demand. Everyone wants crypto and they want to borrow money to buy it. Like, okay, that's where the yields come from. And so it was, it's kind of hilarious to me, like as I spend more time in the space, talking to folks who are like, I don't get it. Because if you just dug in for 30 seconds, you'd be like, oh yeah, this is all rational. It all totally makes sense. Like why like this choosing exists. not to get it. Yeah, it, it could be that. Or like, you know, I think there's like another like spiritual component that I think a lot about, which is, you know, you have to kind of throw out all of your prior knowledge and we're really tied, you know, to where we come from and our heritage, right? Like, you know, you go to the hallowed halls of like major institutions, you work for some big shot private equity firm, or like, you know, you go to Harvard Business School. And crypto, basically, the challenge crypto presents you with is like, are you willing to throw all that out? Right? Are you willing to that's why the understanding? Yeah, yeah, the incentive just isn't there for the other the other party, because they, they're living in a walled garden. And it's like, okay, well, let's just remove the walls from this garden. And, and who has the incentive to do that? Besides, the people on the outside, you know, I, I think I'll, I'll make a crazy sounding assertion, which is I think the barrier is not economic, but spiritual and emotional. That actually that. the resistance has much more to do with your own self-conception than it has to do with incentives. Right. Because and there, hmm. there are some incentives, obviously. Right. Like if you're pretty senior in your career and you're making millions of dollars a year as like a traditional finance investor, it's really hard to take that, throw it all away and say like, oh, yeah with some degree of uncertainty, I'll like make this kind of money like in crypto. Or even if you're like a web two engineer, you're a full stack engineer, you're trained on like web two technologies to be like, oh, I'll throw this all out and become a smart contract engineer. I get that. I get there's like anti-incentives, but I like firmly believe that it's more of a spiritual hurdle. It's actually throwing away who you are and like your self-constructed being that you've really delicately and like meticulously put together over the course of decades, right? Like that's your identity. Your identity is like, I'm a finance guy or like I'm a web two engineer. Well, and what so was that like for you? Just, um, it was like remarkably easy. It was remarkably easy. I, I had already kind of begun that like spiritual transformation journey, like post business school, um, where I wasn't like super married to, you know, any one conception of who I was and yeah, happy to get into how that started how It started with me, like breaking my leg and like, kind of like Whoa. realizing, yeah, uh, yeah, just go in the story. I mean, if you want to get into it for sure, let's do it. Yeah. You so broken leg bros. I mean, let's I've see only broken an arm. That's so funny. I Where broke my femur in half. No way, uh, dude. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, when I was 13, jumped off a rope swing into a river and hit a rock instead of water. <laughs> oh my God. And I got how gurneyed would you out on a towel from one to 10. I mean, it was inconceivably bad. Um, I, I got put, I, I got gurneyed out of the river, uh, on a towel into the back of a RAV4. And it was like four miles of dirt roads to get out to the main road, 
we get to uh, the local hospital who can't um, like treat my problem. So I'm just in the, in the, in the trunk of a RAV4 with my leg like moving back and forth. And then I get moved out of the RAV4. I'm going to start like crying talking about it. I got moved out of the RAV4 into um, an ambulance built for off-roading because they responded to a call to um, the river. So yeah. no suspension, no no um, suspension on this um, ambulance. It, we go downtown, takes an hour and a half, and then the, before I can get uh, any drugs in me, they do a um, an X-ray, and the X-ray is the most pain I've ever felt in my entire life because they had to lift my leg and put a hard board underneath it in order to take the X-ray. And the, I, I guess just the, um, the hardness of it was, it, it was unbearable. And then I got morphine, uh, and I was, you know, in traction for 12 hours. It was hell on earth. So that's my story. <laughs> wow. That sounds absolutely miserable. I ask about the pain because, uh, so I'm skiing, uh, just like a, a trip with some friends and, um, I must've just hit a rock or something. I have no idea, but like I'm flying through the air and, immediately i was like yeah i broke my leg and i land and i tumble on the snow and i'm like waiting for a ski patrol and they get there and they're like what's your pain one to ten and i'm like i don't know like a seven or an eight and they're like are you sure you broke your leg and like this is who i am i was like okay first of all there's no way it's a ten right so like at most it's a nine and like there's way worse pains than this like i could have broken my femur right like i didn't break my femur it was tib fib Mm. a boot top fracture and so I was like, that's at least one click more painful. And so I'm like, yeah, like a seven or eight. But the spiritual journey for me was like, after I broke my leg, it was like very clear there were two choices ahead of me. It was like, one, be like really bitter, angry, and resentful. And like, just be angry at myself and like my friends and like the ski patrol and like the rock and like, you know, how you can get so upset about like the hand that life deals you. Or just like accept it fully and just be like, this is my life now. And like, I remember maybe the opposite of you, Kyle, like that was one of the most cheerful days of my life. Like doctors wow. and nurses were like, they were just like, we want to grab a beer with this guy. Cause like I was just in a mode of pure acceptance. You know, you can't unbreak your leg at that point. And so that's not to like stretch the analogy too much, but I actually do think that made me more spiritually prepared for web three, where it was like, you know, it was so obvious to me that the world is like, look, this old way of doing things is about to be lit on fire. Right. right. And like, okay, I can either fight that emotionally and I can be like, this is awful. I hate everything. Like, why is this happening to me? Like, why is my career being rendered like totally useless or just like fully accept it and be like, okay, my life is just magic internet beans now. And like that degree of acceptance has just made my life so much better than like I ever could have imagined. Yeah. That's funny to me. I think it's important to point out here that, you know, your path was like, I mean, you can't draw it up better. It's like Yale, HBS, Bangkok. It's like you are the person that this not necessarily destroys, but it's like the narrative is completely shifted. You know what I mean? And so it's it's interesting to hear you, uh, you know, word it and, and put it that way because you are the person that it is affecting sort of. And it's like, okay, well, I can either be sad or I can just accept it purely. And yeah, and, so and I kind of I watch it with glee honestly uh it's once you accept it then it's funny like once i accepted my leg was broken then it was funny it was just like okay i broke my leg you know uh and kind of similarly like once i accepted like all this stuff is useless you just have to toss it in the garbage it's like it's funny it's like kind of 
and that and I think that's part of crypto culture, right? Like, and you see that I was with say, yeah. stuff that's happening even today, like the Constitution DAO, right? Like, that's just hilarious. That's just like right. a bunch of internet bros are just gonna like buy a copy of the Constitution. Like, you can't write a funnier or more, more ridiculous story than that. Yeah, it's a part of the culture. It's just the memes are too strong, like literally too good. Um, sure. Okay, well, I want to go over a couple things with you and get your explanation on what a zero-knowledge proof is and what a roll-up is. Because, you know, I've heard it before, but asking the question and getting a response I think will be good for me, Lewis, and the audience. Yeah, there's there's kind of two different concepts here. I, I think it's worth talking about monolithic versus modular blockchains. And so like sure. Bankless, you know, David and, and Ryan did a, did a great uh, episode on this. But what's meant by monolithic versus modular blockchains is like right now we're in the monolithic blockchain era where like a blockchain is just does everything. So if you think about what a blockchain is, it's like a virtual computation environment or like a virtual machine. So you can think of it as just like a virtual computer, right? And it has all the parts of like a normal computer. It's got like a CPU that does processing. Again, this is all virtually. Um, but you can think of these components of like a CPU that does processing and you've got a hard drive that has storage and you've got RAM that stores like the state of the machine, like what's going on at any given time. And so like as we we're in the era where we've built these like giant, giant, giant like monolithic computers, right? You know, you think about Ethereum or Solana or like any of the other layer one chains. And the question is, how do you make the computer go faster, essentially? And what's happened is like you have chains, competitors to Ethereum like Solana, who are just like, we're just going to build the fastest, like most ridiculous computer, like right out of the box. Like we're just going to like put in the biggest processor. We're going to have like um, uh, the most efficient uh, computation, right, all in one chain. And what Ethereum has said is like, okay, one of the things that that does is it compromises decentralization. It makes it really, really hard to validate the chain with anything but like, you know, extreme physical hardware. And so what Ethereum Probably says is like, okay, rather than... Point minimum. Exactly, exactly. And so what Ethereum says is like, okay, why don't we just... Uh, why don't we outsource some of the components of this computer to like other computers, basically? Like, why don't we shard the chain such that some of the execution gets done by other computers, some of the storage gets done by like other pieces of the Ethereum shard. And what we're basically saying is, you know, we're going to um, modularly upgrade the network such that there will be many chains running, uh, executing computation on top of one another. Um, and it'll all get settled on core Ethereum. And so what all the rollup is, is basically saying, we're going to do a bunch of the transaction processing off chain. And then we're going to prove to Ethereum that like we've done that appropriately by updating Ethereum state. So we've kind of done all this stuff. We're going to put it on main Ethereum chain. And we can all look at that and trust that whoever this was outsourced to, whoever the execution was outsourced to, like did it correctly. And there's kind of like two ways of doing that right now. There are optimistic rollups and zero knowledge rollups. An optimistic rollup is kind of what it sounds like. It's kind of just like, trust me that I like did all this stuff correctly. And like, if that trust is broken at any point, you can submit a fraud proof that proves the inverse, like that I didn't do it correctly. And then I'll have to roll back my computation. So like, let's say I want to like, essentially do some compute off chain that like two plus two equals four. If like 
I store a result that's five, like on the chain, then someone at some point has to say like, hey, like I double check this and like this is just like not right. And so that's what optimistic rollup is. Zero knowledge rollups basically used very fancy moon math to say, I'm going to submit a proof that it definitely happened where you don't actually need to see the result. All you need to do is stare at the proof and the proof is like sufficient evidence that I did everything appropriately off chain. And this is like, I'm not even a super technical person. This is all technology that's been developed, you know, in the last two or three years. It's literal mathematicians working on this. And so, you know, our researchers at Aztec um, come from, you know, degrees in physics and have worked on some of the most foundational zero knowledge projects like Zcash and Filecoin um, to, they're essentially inventing a, a form of proving technology that really never existed before. Um, so is the information, so like two plus two equals four, is that being uh, executed or, or like um, stored on another blockchain that then communicates to the Ethereum blockchain in order for, so, so both things are on a blockchain. Is that correct? So or, is it, or can Aztec, it be done? We, yeah. we, we kind of have to define the blockchain. So Aztec does not have its own consensus environment. So we do not actually run consensus on our own chain. We simply execute computation and then prove to the Ethereum chain. So we're still reliant on Ethereum as kind of the sole blockchain. Okay. So I would not define Aztec as a blockchain. I would just define Aztec as um, essentially an outsource execution environment for a very specific type of computation. And for us, that's like all privacy applications, right? Mm -hmm. And so if you want to do a privacy application, you come to us, we do it more cheaply and more privately, and we store the result using zero knowledge proofs on Ethereum. So I uh, used the product, I went in and, uh, you know, shielded some, some Ethereum. I'm sort of unclear, probably just because of my own ignorance as to, you know, what that really means to me as a customer, like what the, the problem that I had before that's being solved is. And I know that we sort of went over it in the beginning with the privacy question, but I think it's, re it's worth revisiting. Yeah, the easy one is like if you wanted to send uh, funds to Lewis, for instance, right? If you did so on Ethereum, there would literally be a transaction that says like 0x, some identifier that means you, sending like 0.1 ETH to 0x something that represents Lewis. It's hyper visible. On Aztec, you can do a private transfer. So you can send it to him, Lewis's alias within the Aztec system, and no one is aware of it. No one other than you and Lewis, of course, because you were the ones who coordinated the transaction. But outside of the two of you, no one in the world knows what happened. That's so, incredibly powerful. I kind of think of this as actually, as Lewis mentioned previously, like taking a cash mentality into Ethereum. So Ethereum is built on like a, a public account ledger system where if you were to send funds to Lewis, I would deduct funds from your account and I'd add funds to Lewis's account. So there's like multiple pieces of state, right? You have like an account state, like balance that needs to be, uh, lowered and then Lewis is an account balance that needs to be increased. There are massive problems with that uh, um, among which are, we all kind of need the state to verify it. The way that Aztec works under the hood is it's essentially a cash transaction. You're handing him a note, a note, like a, 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 a bank note, essentially a bill, um, a piece of paper that says like 0.1 ETH on it. 
And so you're handing it to them. And by virtue of that, like all we need to do is really just change whoever, change the name that's written on the note, but we don't have to update a bunch of account state. Like that notion kind of disappears. And so the same way in a cash transaction, only you and the other person know what happened. Um, that's kind of what underlies all of Aztec. So is, this can be completely wrong. So would Kyle essentially be, you know, do you act as an intermediary where Kyle sends you 0.1 ETH and then from some scrambled address you send me that? And am I aware that the ETH I received came from Kyle, oh, but it's sorry. private? Those are two separate mm. questions, but... Yeah, so ask the, the first question again. It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so the receiver is not aware who the sender is. The sender needs to know who the receiver is because otherwise you wouldn't know where to send it. But the receiver simply receives funds. So you receive funds, they come into your account. Um, and presumably you should know, right, who sent it to you because presumably you coordinated the transaction. Um, but no, the amount you don't know itself who sent is it like to the you. indicator. Yeah, the amount can be the indicator or some kind of like off-chain communication where you just literally call someone and you're like, hey, I'm about to send you this thing. Don't be surprised when it like hits your account. So in your role as uh, growth at Aztec, what are you um, like? What are you responsible for? What are you trying? What is what is your goal? There's there's a lot, but I I think of it as just make the number go up, make MGU. more people <laughs> use and care about Aztec, right? And so we've been growing a lot more recently because you know partly because of appearances like this, right? And explain to people why Aztec's important, why privacy is important, um, and that. Growth in um, crypto is still very much an art rather than a science. You know, we're using like a variety of tools that Memes. happen to be the channels where crypto people uh, interact, right? Mm -hmm. It's like Discord and it's Twitter and it's certain Telegram groups. Um, and so for me, it's about making sure that our community understands and can proselytize on behalf of Aztec and like see the utility. So like that's the other beautiful thing about crypto is we have this like culture of collaboration and contribution where we have many of our community members who contribute to the protocol in like big and small ways whether writing code for aztecs bridge contracts that will allow for DeFi interactions on layer one or running support for us when other users are having issues um, and a lot of this is premised on the notion that number one that we're all very values aligned um, and two that like more members joining the network will actually increase its utility and increase the amount of privacy within the network. And yeah, that reminds me of something that I saw, I think Mark Andreessen talk about one time, which was like, um, the, the value of becoming a member early on is much higher than the value of becoming a member, like way later, just in these protocols in general. And that's sort of flipped the way that traditional, uh, networks have worked in the past where like the billionth user of Facebook is a lot more value to be captured than the first user. And this kind of flips that on its head, which is huge for, for adoption. Yeah. I, and that's especially true with token incentives. So Aztec does not have a public token. We uh, don't currently have short-term plans to have one. Um, but when you see networks with tokens, yeah, it's remarkably impactful to think like if I am economically incentivized from an early stage, right? I want as many people to own this protocol and use it as possible. 
that type of like reflexive loop between users and owners like we just have never seen before like i'm trying i i struggle to even think of a real world analog it's almost like uh if every time i put my bank of america atm card like in the atm like i got a piece of a share of bank of america stock like that would be a, just a psychotic way to live right yeah this is something that i was talking about with my friends the other day is like I think what's going to happen or what's happening is like the principal agent problem is being erased. It's like anybody who can interact or, or does interact with a protocol or a, a crypto company, let's just say like they, they, they're, they're, uh, the threshold is to be a principal. And once you're a principal, you can interact with the, uh, with the protocol or with the company. And like, that is just completely different than anything than any way that anything's ever worked. And so like the, um, you know, first, second, third order consequences of this new world where the principal agent problem is drastically reduced is like, that's gotta be a good thing, right? Like, no, big time. And, and also as a user, you don't really feel like you're getting hosed. Like there's like a couple, a couple of notions here. One is improving economic incentives and alignment, right? Like at any point, if we are providing more value, like I'm the beneficiary of that value. Whereas, you know, you kind of think about in a web two context where it's like, okay, we're improving a bunch of like, uh, uh, usage and engagement. And like, where does that value all derive? Like it all kind of ultimately gets grabbed by shareholders. And so as a user, you're just being extracted, right? Mm. You're going in there, you're like swiping your Instagram and like, you think there's some amount of utility the vast, vast amount of utility is like getting taken away. And so I think of the way I like to think about the extractive nature of web two is kind of like CPMs cost per mill, or like kind of just, you know, you guys might be familiar with this being in media is like, how much do you get paid to serve an ad to someone? Right. Or like, what is the monetization stream for getting served an ad? And oftentimes CPM, which is like, you know, revenue per thousand impressions can be in the single digit dollars. And so we're talking about like, people valuing your time watching an ad at like fractions of a penny. Like that's how much we value users in web too. It's so like interesting. Your time mm. on an hourly basis is worth like three pennies. Like that's your value as a human being. That seems like totally wild. It tells you like how extractive the system really is. Yeah. I mean, if you make more than $10 an hour, then you're getting hosed. <laughs> like you're spending yeah. multiple hours on TikTok and Instagram. Right. Um, so Lewis, your question. Always go ad free because you can afford it uh, to go ad free. It's a lot more affordable than people think. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of other pieces of the ecosystem uh, that we'd like to ask you about. There's and some things uh, unrelated to crypto I'd like to get to. But one project I saw you're involved in, or at one point I don't know your current involvement, uh, is the consumer packaged good NFTs. Could you speak to to that project and what was of interest and or is still of interest about it? Yeah, CBG is a fun little group. So Chris Cantino and Jamie Schmidt, um, they uh, co-founded, exited um, Schmidt's Naturals, which is a natural deodorant company. So they're like, you know, CPG OGs, right? They like really understand the consumer game, like in not even the Web2 world, like really in like consumer retail. And they've gotten deep into Web3 and um, invited me to be a mentor in their, you know, CPG NFT group. And what it is is, it's this interesting notion of an NFT gated community. Um, and they've just set up a telegram where you link your MetaMask wallet. And if you have possession of this NFT, then you're allowed, you know, into the gates and you're allowed into this hyperactive telegram, like literally like a thousand, fifteen hundred messages a day. I think that's the way the world is going to work, right? 
like we we're gonna have these fungible tradable sendable memberships mm-hmm. um i sent one of these to my friend Stephen coburn who's uh was a classmate of mine at hbs um who's like really involved in some nft projects and just the idea that i could like give someone membership and then that they could re-gift it um and it's tradable on a permissionless market um yeah it doesn't that notion doesn't really exist in web 2 right now so yeah it's been a fun ride getting involved with those folks yeah i wasn't familiar until lewis brought it up i think the intersection of nfts and real world goods in the future will be super interesting to watch i don't know like I don't really have any ideas around like how it works or like how it makes it better, but I'm sure that people will figure it out and it's going to be face melting probably. Um, Do you have anything to say on that or? Yeah, for sure. I I think it'll be interesting to see bridges between the decentralized world and the physical world. Um, I'm not actually super long those ideas for the most part, even though I'm a constitution Dow booster. (laughs) Um, and, and I only say that because bridging between the digital world and the quote unquote real world is always going to require a a trusted party. It's Mm. always going to require someone to custody that physical item. Um, so if you're buying the constitution, it literally exists somewhere in like a room. And so how can you assure that it is like being safeguarded, that it exists, that it's authentic, um, when none of those activities are on chain? Like that coordination problem of like on-chain, off-chain, you know, we, we certainly have certain oracles that reach from the decentralized world to the centralized web world, but from the decentralized web world to, you know, the physical world, you know, it'll be, it'll remain to be seen, but the, the trust bottleneck will always be kind of that third party that sits there and makes sure that the constitution's okay and it like hasn't been destroyed in a fire. Right. Because that's inherently sort of against like what crypto stands for. It'll have a much tougher time to uh, become like what it could be. Uh, totally exactly. agree. Um, so I have a question sort of related, but unrelated. Are you familiar with Blodgy? Do you follow him at all? Um, you know, I have, but I, I can't say I'm like a yeah, huge, huge Blodgy fan. Nerd on him. Sorry, uh, not that I don't like yeah, him. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I was... Familiar. Gonna ask you because I know you lived in in China for a few years working for uh, I think it was Bain, and I wanted to ask you about um, sort of his thesis is like the future looks like a centralized China and a de- decentralized West, and I wanted to ask you just about like Chinese crypto politi- or policies, what you think about it, and how you think it'll, it'll look moving into the future. If you have anything to comment on that. Yeah, I actually don't have really strong thoughts on China and crypto, but I understand why very, very clearly on like, uh, you know, principle and ideology level, why they would want to ban crypto, right? If you think about crypto as like arming uh, organizations, um, arming and giving organizations a tool for like mass human coordination, like Constitution Dow is a really good example, actually, you know, $40 million raised in one week. Like those types of human coordination games, like if if that had not been a crypto thing, that would be front page news everywhere. If it was like a bunch of random people around the world decided to buy the constitution for $40 million and they raised it all in one week, people would be like, that's crazy. But it's not front page news because for whatever reason, we hand wave this like crypto thing being like, oh, they well, they bought it with magic beans and I don't know about those meat beans. It, it, you know, it seems like a Ponzi, but that's real money, right? That's like $40 million that I believe the auction is going to go down pretty soon. And so like, if you think about this as like 
facilitating gigantic human coordination games, the the number one people who should be like hyper scared right now are sovereign states because sovereign states are in the in the mission in the role of coordinating human beings and protecting human beings and if humans are able to say like we don't really need sovereign states to coordinate anymore like thanks but no thanks right like thanks for all your tax infrastructure thanks for the irs like thanks for all the guns and stuff but like actually we could do that all and like we can use open source tools that are right out the box and so it makes a ton of sense to me that china's trying to shut that all down especially because you know, China's very, you know, their whole ethos is antithetical to human co coordination and organization. Um, so I also think the United States will face actually like a similar decision point where we're going to have to be like, are we going to support open decentralization and human coordination and allow people to kind of like do things that are subversive to the state? Or... Um, are we going to embrace it, right? Are we going to figure out a way to coexist like with this new way of doing things? And I really think it's one way or the other. You have to go full decentralization. You have to really, really, really lean in and like let it thrive. Or you need to be China and you need to ban it and you need to lock it down. And you need to say, we have the monopoly on violence, on monetary policy and on human coordination. I want to shift gears to a non-crypto question. I'm sure we have some other protocols we'll want some quick takes on maybe at the end. Uh, one thing you've been somewhat vocal about on Twitter is just like the importance of potentially sometimes just proactive therapy and or coaching as like kind of an essential part of being like a successful, mature, whatever you want to call it, adult who's just doing a whole lot better than they were otherwise. Uh, do you want to elaborate on your views there? Why you kind of have that stance? Why you're so vocal about sharing it, et cetera? Yeah. I mean, I would say that like the, the three legs of that, um, perspective kind of like therapy psychedelics and meditation have been really core to my development as a person um and it actually i think it really all started when i broke my leg and i was presented like with these like two options right of just like basically zen on one side and just like hate on the other or like it was almost like a jedi sith like you know two sides of the coin right like you can be like angry and resentful or, or not um i think of therapy is just like really simply like I was an athlete. I love sports. Um, do you have a coach, right? If you do sports, do you have a coach and why? And it's like, well, we have a coach because sometimes we're not aware of the mistakes that we're making with our own bodies, right? Like I was a tennis player for a really long time. Maybe there's like a kink in your stroke. That's just like, you can't see you're just in that rut. You've been like hitting the, the ball that way for that many years. And to get to the next level, you need someone to point out like, hey, your elbow is kind of cocked like five degrees out to the side. And like, let's practice you like tucking your elbow in a little bit and like you'll generate a little more power behind the ball and you just hit the ball harder. Okay, so it seems crazy to me that like a tennis player would, would turn that down, right? There's not a single tennis player on earth who doesn't have a coach because you need that other perspective to show you what your deficiencies are. And that's how I think about therapy or like another analogy would be like physical therapy, right? Like. I'm having like lots of tightness and trouble walking. I have like a limp in my left leg. Do you go to a physical therapist or do you just like gut it out? Well, there's like really no prize for gutting it out, right? Like it's, it's only going to be good for you if you have a professional kind of show you how to like fix this fundamental trauma to your body. And that's all a therapist is, is just either amending traumas to your brain and like your, your soul, right? Um, or making you better. Let's say you're a healthy person. A therapist can show you how to like tuck that elbow in and like 
really get to the next level. And so to me, it's like, it's a complete no brainer if you have the means and like, you know, it's obviously an immense privilege to be able to hire a therapist. A lot of them don't take insurance, but if you have the means, like in my mind, it's just as much of a no brainer as a professional athlete having a coach. Yeah, that's very super interesting. (laughs) No, that's super interesting. I've never thought about it like that. Um, yeah, I noticed that you're an athlete captain of the Yale cycling team. I'm sure that was a lot of hard work. Yeah, I was probably the slowest uh, captain of any sports <laughs> team ever. Uh, but yeah, for a while, really, really enjoyed racing bikes. Yeah, I mean, I, I want to come back to, um, you know, the United States either leaning in or leaning away from crypto. I'm not really sure how to ask a question around it without you, like, you know, predicting the future, which is just impossible. Um, I, I guess, like, how best, like, like, what do you think the best case scenario is? Um, Great question. I think the best case scenario is a proactive regulatory framework where we actually appoint good faith crypto regulators who deeply understand the promise of the technology and why it's fundamentally aligned with American values, Mm. um, like individual freedom. Um, uh, you know, I, I think that's the best possible outcome that we can ask for. Um, I think the in between where we kind of have regulatory regulators who are potentially captured by existing interests, which are not necessarily aligned with crypto, like, DeFi is going to be highly disruptive to traditional finance, like for a fact, right? Let me get, let me tell you just a quick story. I sent some money to my accountant, which is already just, for starters, very painful. Went into my Chase account, uh, sent him the funds. Um, Chase locked my account. Okay, that really sucks. But now I have to call a physical phone number, right? I have to punch the numbers in. To my phone to like kind of get my account unlocked and i do so the numbers the line is down or it's like not business hours i call back during business hours it's a 90 minute wait that amount of friction to lose access to your livelihood is something that people are not going to tolerate once they're presented with the alternative which is 24 7 permissionless access to your funds globally anywhere you want to go you have a usb drive a ledger a trezor you know, like a a hardware wallet in your pocket, you can take your money and your funds wherever there is an internet connection. Um, So I think we need regulators who understand how powerful that is and how that'll benefit the United States to be leaders in that technology, rather than resisting it and saying like, oh, this is going to be disruptive, you know, to an existing industry. Every paradigm shift in technology is disruptive, right? There's this creative destructive force of capitalism that always makes us better off in the long run, but requires the destruction of the old paradigm. Yeah, good faith is the key word there. It's difficult to, to find those people and to get those people into those positions of power without uh, them being corrupted in some way, just by the natural interests of the, uh, the destruction of these industries that have, you know, for, I don't know, 150 years run the entire world. It's like, it's not a easy pill for them to swallow, but it's definitely coming. Um, yeah, I have a couple questions, a couple more questions for you. What are the least talked about, uh, actual big risks to crypto? 
one thing that comes to mind for me is like a sun flare like giant. And I don't even know if that's tr- a, a good example. It's just like a sun flare comes like takes out the entire power grid and then all my Ethereum's gone. So like, are there other things like that? Do you want to comment on that? W- what do you think? I have not thought of that. Um, actually, I, I actually think the biggest risk is still regulatory because uh, mm-hmm. with a stroke of the pen, any regulator could just end the industry tomorrow if they wanted to. Um, I think the other thing that uh, is a really big risk is I think we're underwriting these like tail risk events that haven't really happened yet, but we don't really understand the amount of systemic risk that's being underwritten when you have a virtual machine in which like all these smart contracts are interactive. Like Mm. they are all, all these systems are reliant on each other. Like one actual benefit potentially from web two is systems are centralized and closed off from one another. Um, now this isn't always the case, right? If someone like loses your social security number, which for sure has probably already happened, but if it hasn't, will likely happen soon, given how free we are with giving out this piece of identity like that, that represents a systemic risk for you, but it doesn't mean like the whole system comes crashing down. I think in a system, in a, in a world like web three, where every smart contract, every DeFi protocol, you know, not only are reliant on the underlying infrastructure, but reliant on each other to function. And as these systems become more closely interconnected, I think it's very, very, very hard to underwrite the systemic risk. And, you know, there's this notion in crypto of the Lindy effect, the longer something's been around, the more likely it's going to be around for a longer and longer time. A lot of these systems we think are ultra Lindy, right? These are contracts that have been out in the open, like ready for hackers to kind of exploit for years and years. Um, or at least months and months. And so we kind of assume like if it hasn't been taken, given how adversarial the environment is, given how much money is at stake, given how big the prize is, if it hasn't happened, it doesn't feel like it will happen. Um, and yet last week, a Ave hack- had, a, had a vulnerability. And uh, yeah, I mean, I wrote about systemic risks and inoperability and, and composability like last year on Twitter. Because I totally agree. I mean, I think it's dangerous. And if you have a, a problem on Aave, then like every OHM or Ohm fork, like, like the entire system could collapse if one of these bottom blocks gets gets ruined. And it's like, it's just, it is dangerous. So I agree. Yeah, it's, it's hard to understate like how much risk there could be. Um, and yeah, it's it's something that I can only say for me personally, I try not to think about because there's no way to conceive of it for me, right? And so I kind of just have to, you have to just take that as part of your underwriting to be like, okay, there's some tail risk that this is all just going to explode. Um, and just assume the amount of remarkable amount of like white hat diligence in shoring up security systems. And th- quite frankly, like the amount of attention paid to, to the space by exploitation and hackers um, that's a, a very powerful test, right? If something survives being in, in the open with billions of dollars at stake for a long enough period, you actually do have to have some, some measure of confidence that, um, it's secure. I had a question. I lost it when I, I had to blow my nose. It's on this piece of paper somewhere. Uh, we did mention the Olympus Dow or Kyle called Omis, whatever you want to call it. Uh, what are your takes on that? Do you think that's a project with staying power? It's too early to ascribe the Lindy effect to it, in my opinion. Uh, can you briefly intro it for people who don't know what it is, which is, I'd say, majority of our listeners in your quick read? Majority of people in the world have no idea. That too. Yeah. 
Yeah, Olympus DAO is pretty crazy. It kind of started as this idea of an unbacked or an unpegged stablecoin, rather. So the idea of a stable asset is just something that's not volatile, volatile, something that is potentially tied to CPI. And, you know, there's centralized CPI, right? The federal government publishes, you know, the basket of goods, bas uh, 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 the price of a basket of goods on an ongoing basis. And that's where they kind of try to peg inflation. Um, and the basket has like all the things that you might buy. It has like gasoline in it and like your car payment and some amount of housing and education, etc. Olympus was basically saying we can't use even if we have uh, a stable asset like DAI that's decentralized and not tied to the U.S. dollar in any like uh, custodial backed way. Um, it's still pegged to the federal government's perception of like what inflation is. And so we need some kind of decentralized basket of goods, right? Decentralized basket of assets to track a stable asset. Um, and the way that they did that um, was quite com complex. But essentially they said, you know, one ohm will always be backed by one die originally. And a, and a die is just a decentralized US dollar to kind of like hand wave what die is. And the way that the protocol started gaining, gaining steam was it traded above the one die fundamental value. And what the protocol did uh, to earn revenue was essentially sell ohm at a premium to its actual fundamental value. So if the fundamental value is a dollar, ohm today is like a thousand dollars per ohm. And so that thousand dollars is only, you know, in the worst case, backed by a single dollar. So selling an ohm for a thousand dollars and putting a dollar in the treasury means that the protocol books $999 of revenue essentially. And so there's this like interesting loop that happens where because the protocol earns a whole bunch of revenue from the price being high, it looks like Ohm's revenue um, is large and growing and the amount of treasury assets that it has is large and growing. And because people see that happening, they want to buy more Ohm because they think that you know, more and more assets are going to be acquired by the treasury. It's going to become de-risk over time. And so I think of Ohm as a liquidity black hole. They're just trying to acquire every asset in the universe by convincing you that like, if you buy Ohm at a discount today, um, Ohm will be worth even more tomorrow. We'll print even more Ohm because we're going to acquire every asset in the universe. Eventually, I wouldn't say this has to end, but the price of Ohm has to slowly converge toward its fundamental value over a long enough period. Um, so, okay, so why is, why is Olympus important? Why is Ohm important? Um, it just shows the power of human coordination. It just shows that as long as you get people to believe in the long-term vision, which is like acquire every asset in the world, which sounds psychotic, right? Like it sounds, um, almost as stupid as like, let's raise $40 million and like buy the U S constitution. But that's the power of these narratives. If you can convince everyone to actually collaborate, well, Ohm is over a $3 billion market cap right now with hundreds of millions of dollars of treasury assets. Um, like the vision is actually playing out uh, exactly as they predicted and as we all underwrote. Um, and you're seeing other projects that I'm less close to, like Clima, that uses the same model to acquire carbon offsets. Um, and, and what it really shows is the, the promise of bootstrapping a movement from nothing. Right. And just convincing people like if we all coordinate in this way, that's fundamentally irrational. Right. Like buy this thing and never sell it is essentially what 
Olympus DAO is like telling its followers, like just buy this thing and never sell it. And if you if you buy it and you never sell it, we will eventually own the entire earth. Um, the power to basically like convince people to do something irrational for a long time actually somehow makes the project rational, right? You like bootstrap from irrationality to rationality. And I think that's like something that can only be done in crypto. There's something magical about uh, that promise and that notion. And I think we're going to see a lot more projects like that. I think we're going to start seeing like crazy coordination games of like people banding together to buy a nuclear reactor or like build a skyscraper, or, like just like mega projects that you just didn't really think were possible are going to start to be unlocked by these like massive yeah. global coordination games. Praxis is going to build uh, a giant monument or something like that. I, I know that that's one example of <laughs> a group of people doing something otherwise that is not done anymore. Right. Like, and I yep. think that it's incredible. I think big monuments, big giant things of stone written words and the, yeah, it's sick. Um, totally. So the only reason we actually asked you to come on is tell you tell us about your uh, your experience with Theranos. No, I'm kidding. But you did have a viral tweet <laughs> about Elizabeth Holmes. We have to ask about it. It's obligatory. Um, what was it like to stare into those eyes? I mean, it's like everything <laughs> they told you and that you saw, right? Uh, you know, there's always this moment when you meet someone famous or that you only well, let's, see. Well, let me paint the scene for the for the uh, for the audience too. Yeah, for sure. Um, so let's see. I was in my second year of business school. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do after I graduated. A couple senior professors were like, you got to meet Elizabeth Holmes at Theranos. And I'm like, Elizabeth Holmes. Okay, <laughs> so this is 2017. All right. 2016, John Carreyrou puts out his investigative report, basically being like, this whole thing's a fraud. So at that point in 2017, they were getting sued by every single person on earth. The SEC, the FDA, Walgreens, their investors. Elizabeth was like kind of like at the end of potentially handing back like all of her equity as a show of good faith. Like, hey, you know, this thing is ending. I'm just going to like I'm just going to I'm going to give you guys, all my investors like my equity just to prove like I wasn't in it for the money. I still believe in this thing. And so I was like, man, this is so crazy. But like I, I can't. These are professors that I still respect to this day and I can't possibly blame them for this. And you'll understand why soon. Um I'm like, they have such high credibility. Like, I've got to talk to this woman. And plus, it's like, what a story, right? It's like, I literally was like, someday this is going to make a great story. I didn't realize how great. Um, so I kind of show up there, and I, I interview with her brother, Christian Holmes, who's just like, in the book, they're just like these, like, Duke Laxbros, and, like, that's kind of what he was. He was just like a Duke Laxbro who, like, worked at his, you know, sister's company. Like, it seemed like everything was fine. Like, everyone... You know, just to paint a little bit more of a picture there's like 10 people in this office that an office that was built for like hundreds right so we're in this like cavernous beautiful office and there's like 10 people there and then elizabeth walks in and like you know the classic baritone she's like hey john great to meet you like that deep maybe deeper like i don't understand how this woman like kept up with it for so many years and uh you know we kind of I, I anticipated that she would be really defensive and that she would you know, tried to defend Theranos's honor. And instead she kind of just went straight in and she was like, you know, I've made some serious mistakes as CEO and it's really lonely. Um, you know, Theranos is my entire life. It's all I've done, you know, for 15 years. Like I don't live for anything else. Like this is why I was put on this earth and it's really hard to find people I trust. It's hard to know 
you know, who I can rely on given everything that's happened with the company. And I need someone by my side to take Theranos to the next level to unlock my potential that I know I have as CEO. And that person's you. And like, that's a crazy thing, right? That's like, I truly was stunned because just it's not typical for anyone in your life to tell you how deeply you're needed in that way. I, I'm to this day, no family member, significant other, investor, friend, colleague, boss, subordinate has ever talked to me in that way. It was so deeply alluring because it just doesn't exist like that level of like authentic. And it wasn't even neediness. It was like, I deeply need you. But also, if you say no, like, I'm not going to bite your head off. Like, I'll be disappointed. But just understand that you have, like, the most value of anyone that I've ever seen in the entire world in the most genuine, convincing way that, like, I've ever felt. And so can I possibly blame anyone for falling under that spell? Like, no. Like, I wish everyone had that experience. I wish everyone could have been in that room and felt what felt what that was like. Because you'd be like, this is a, you know, this is a once in a generation type person. Um, now, it's not always, you know, maybe maybe I just haven't met enough of those people. Paul Graham retweeted me that day, retweeted my Theranos story. And he was like, oh, these people are a dime a dozen in politics and in Hollywood, which I, I totally believe. Right. You need that type of just absolute earth shattering charisma to help humans coordinate, you know, in really cutthroat environments. I had just never seen that before. And so I was just totally mind blown by it. What a story. That's an incredible story. Yeah. I mean, wow. <laughs> um, Lewis, do you have anything else? I, I've got a final question here. We can do a quick rattle off. Obviously, we'll I've got one more question too. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, I'm sure we'll say this again at the beginning of the episode, just on like the little intro we'll record, not financial advice. Uh, and when I call this the irresponsible section of the podcast, the whole podcast is theoretically yeah. irresponsible because crypto speculative. Uh, but for the exponentially yeah. irresponsible, exponentially irresponsible section of the podcast, what are some some fun YOLO projects worth exploring? In the double, Ooh, irresponsible I category? really. Um, okay. Let, let, let me let me let me rephrase this in a way that's not financial advice, but just like fun advice. I, I think that this crypto cycle has shown me that crypto is like for sure the future. And like, I can't speak for anyone else, but there are certain games that have been unlocked. And I mean game in the loosest sense. I mean game in the way that like there's multiple humans playing toward a goal um, that just have been mind blowing. So Loot, this NFT project mm -hmm. uh, that was released um, by the co-founder of Vine, Dom, Loot is just a crazy crazy idea crazy it's a generative art piece that's just white text on a black background and all it is is just items that you might find in like a medieval role play loot bag like you know a dragon sword and like pants and like a and shoes and he released this and the collective imagination of web3 took it and built entire universes on top of it um entire economies literally people i met a guy who retired based on an airdrop of adventure gold, which is a virtual currency for a universe that doesn't exist. Um, I, I, I actually am convinced that like, if you don't do psychedelics, if you like, don't break out of what normal everyday life looks like, you will not comprehend kind of the level of imagination that's going to happen. 
And loot showed me the way. Loot was like, oh, the seed of a mu- of human imagination is all powerful. Like we can invent these universes overnight. All we need is a push from a visionary um, to kind of like get us going. Um, loot is an amazing coordination game that came out of the cycle. Uh, Party Dow and Party Bid were amazing coordination games that were like people could collectively purchase something. Not unlike Constitution Dow, I would say Constitution Dow was one of them. That was a gigantic coordination game. Many, many tens of thousands of humans, you know, purchasing an artifact. Um, and then Nouns Dow. Nouns Dow is another one that I would look into if you're interested in like what is the potential of human beings getting together and getting big, hairy, audacious goals done. Um, NounsDAO is just selling one F- NFT a day for eternity. And they've been selling them at the clip of like, f- you know, $500,000 raised per day. So we're talking about $180 million of revenue with no objective. The objective is just if you contribute, you get a vote in how the money gets spent, which is like a nutty idea, right? It's just like, hey, I don't know where we're going, but I'm willing to put in half a million dollars to find out. Um, so these are just some projects that I love from this cycle that show you how powerful human imagination is, like how powerful these economic incentives can be to like bind um, human actors together. And yeah, I'm just so excited for what happens next cycle, whether there's a bear market or not. Like if you think buying the constitution is crazy, like, man, I just, I, I truly cannot even wrap my mind around what's going to happen next cycle. What should people Lewis and I's age be doing to, best prepare ourselves put ourselves in a position to benefit and gain from um you know not necessarily monetarily but just like uh, how do we prepare ourselves for this inevitable future so many ways to go but the thing that comes to mind to me is if you ever catch yourself saying i don't get it take that as a challenge if you go i don't get it right there's that's your body like rejecting something like, I don't get it means like, I don't really want to get it. If you don't get it, take that as a self challenge to dig in. I would say every single time I even catch myself all the time, right? Sometimes I'll, I'll read about a new protocol and be like, I don't get it. And that's a failure of your own imagination and your diligence. That's just being lazy. That's your body protecting yourself from work that it doesn't want to do. So if you catch yourself saying like, I don't get it, just dig in until you do have an answer, right? You should always come to conviction one or the other either absolutely not or okay yes but not i don't get it that is pure laziness i think that is a perfect place to end this podcast i'm gonna send kyle some academic papers on zk math (laughs) john (laughs) um where should we send people who are interested in aztec and you uh and and want to learn more yeah check out our private payment protocol zk.money or I'm on Twitter at twitter.com slash John Wu underscore J O N W U underscore. Excellent. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure guys. And that wraps up our conversation with John Wu. Another extremely interesting, uh, really like fascinating to hear from somebody who has sort of like risen through the ranks of every institution that you could aspire to, to accomplish or, or get through. And then, um, his perspective on it, sort of looking back from his position now in crypto, which is my first takeaway just about um, how Aztec is, is sort of bringing crypto back to uh, um, an operation that already exists is like one of my first questions is like, why is privacy important? And he was like, I, I just think it should be the default. It's like 
that's how uh, cash works now, and that's what they want to create on um, on you know Ethereum. Because like the way it works now is if I send you money or or you send um, me money, I can go to your wallet and I can see every interaction you've ever had on the Ethereum protocol. I can see where the money came from. I mean, there's just so much that you can do to track um, like where funds have flowed. And that's just not the way, like if I want to give Lewis $10 for a taco, he can't look through my, my bank statement. And yeah, that, that makes sense to me. Uh, number two is just how interesting it was, like, um, the way that he framed moving into crypto from a spiritual perspective and how he brought it back to, uh, when he broke his leg and he sort of had this moment where he picked between like anger and hate or like peace and joy and like how he sort of felt that same way when he realized that right or wrong realized that like, you know, crypto is the future. It's going to take over and make what I've done beforehand or before now sort of irrelevant in terms of like the, uh, credentialism, credentialed society. And, you know, just being him as somebody who's like so far ahead in those credentials. And then he thinks, you know, potentially these are, will not be worth as much. Like he could either choose between hate and like anger or like joy and peace. And, you know, it seems like he's been making that joy and peace decision, uh, for a while. And, and like, that's how he looks at the world. So it's really interesting. And then just number three, that Theranos story is so good. You can tell that he, he's polished it, said it a few times. Um, but that like the, uh, Elizabeth, um, what's her name? I can't remember her last name, but like the pure, Holmes, Elizabeth Holmes, the pure charisma that he is describing out of her is just like, it's not necessarily inspiring because of the outcome that it came to, but like the fact that those people exist is, is just cool. And, um, and yeah, I think, I think he was shocked by it. And then it was cool about his comment with, with Paul Graham replying and be like, no, these people are a dime a dozen in Hollywood. They're everywhere. You just don't know it. And so those are my takeaways. Lewis, what do you have for us? Yeah. Great takeaways, Kyle three from me uh one is kind of a, something i've not you know how much i've been in this energy as much as i used to be i feel like i used to be more like rah rah go do crazy stuff and i like want to get back on that energy but something john said that really resonated with uh that perspective that's still in me somewhere is like uh when he says you know the trigger of i don't get it in crypto projects and i think this came out specifically when we were talking about olympus which just has a super confusing complex or complicated there's there's like a difference between the two either way there's a lot going on and understanding how the olympus dow works and the treasury and like it's completely new to a lot of people myself included and this is like what you're saying about the spiritual choices right but it's like when you're presented with that moment of facing something so foreign to you and so confusing do you say i don't get it i'm not, not gonna understand this and give up or do you take that as a trigger to be like okay now i'm gonna take time to understand this take that as a challenge and i think that's the better framing so that's kind of the you know ongoing challenge with anything you hear on this podcast that's worth exploring like if it doesn't make sense don't cue that as like well i guess i'm not gonna understand that like take that as a challenge to take the time to understand it second takeaway from me is uh similar to what you're talking about about you know cash and making Ethereum operate more like cash, but this is more something about the power of naming. I think I've discussed this before in writing or in some podcasts, but you know, money is not the same as cash is not the same as dollars. Uh, but because so few people know the distinction between that, you know, and, and it's not the same as currency as well. It's easy for, let's say people with potentially malicious intentions to leverage the fact that people don't know the difference between those things to introduce something as the same as all of those, but then not retain some of the properties. And that's how you get in trouble. So, you know, digital money, which we, 
think or digital cash to call it something like cash app like by square and to call that cash when that's very different from paper money because of the traceability and the tracking and the surveillance etc leads a lot of people to make the same decisions as if they're using the other medium when they're not uh, which could potentially put you in some trouble and i think another example of this kind of just the power of naming or like equating things that are not equal making these comparisons uh inappropriately is like something we see in like the media uh like the conflation of the terms news journalism and media all three of those things kind of are are different things it's so like the news refers to you know cable television let's call it entertainment programs with like spokespeople riffing on current events uh or like riffing on things inspired by current events to manipulate you uh media is just like generally things like this podcast is media that's just like things that multimedia i guess uh and then journalism is like ideally people just as objectively as possible describing a sequence of events but because those things get conflated we get we confuse the news with journalism or the media with all those things when like media could you know anyway think about things be precise in your speech and be precise in your listening so you don't get manipulated ideally third takeaway for me hopefully that made sense uh is I'm going to do the exact same thing here right now. Same, same fallacy, uh, but the importance and or usefulness of therapy and coaching, uh, whereas therapy and coaching are probably really distinct things. I'm going to group them together because I don't really have a fundamental understanding of the difference. And John didn't say it was terribly important, uh, but just how fundamentally important that is. That's something that's come up in at least 10 episodes is people who just fundamentally had their lives and success transformed by either a coach or a therapist. And that's something uh, I'd encourage myself to do. And anyone who's listening that feels like, John's analogy is about, you know, a coach for your brain making sense to explore. That's something I've wanted to do for a long time. Again, you can't spot your own blind spots because they're blind spots and a coach and a therapist can help. That's all I have to say for this episode with John Wu. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. A few calls to action for you this time. We haven't gotten a review on iTunes in a while, uh, mostly because we're promoting YouTube more than we're promoting the audio of this podcast lately. Either way, we'd appreciate if you left a rating or review on iTunes if that's where you're listening, or subscribe and a like on YouTube if that's where you're watching. As Kyle said at the very, very beginning, we've got about 90 other episodes we'd encourage you to listen to. Or if you want to support us more financially, we have a sponsor now called Espresso Displays. They're really awesome portable second monitors or portable single monitors if you're just plugging them into something like a Mac Mini or you keep your laptop closed. Either way, an extra screen wherever you go, thinner than an iPad, really sick product. Link in the bio to check that out and learn more. We'll be back in roughly one week with another episode. Thanks so much for listening. See you then. Bye-bye.